Brittany Martin. Bandwidth for the show and all shows on 5x5 provided by Cashfly, the world's most reliable CDN. If you're in podcasting like me or any other business whose customers want content always available, give them the fast downloads they need with Cashfly. Imagine having your content a single network hop away from all your customers from NYC to Hong Kong. Eliminate CDN outages with Cashfly's solid 1,000% uptime SLA. Learn more at 5x5cashfly.com. On August 15th, GitHub celebrated a major milestone. Their main application is now running on the latest version of Rails, 5.2.1. Eileen Yuchtel, better known as Eileen Codes and Senior Systems Engineer at GitHub and a Rails core contributor, had a big hand in the upgrade. I've invited Eileen onto the show to discuss the process and her work uh, on multiple database support in Rails 6. Welcome to the show, Eileen. Thanks for having me, Brittany. Absolutely. So let's kick things off like I normally like to. Can you please tell us your developer origin story? Okay, that's kind of funny. Um, so I, I have almost zero computer science background. Uh, I was an art major in college and see one year I wanted to sign up for a printmaking class but uh, somehow none of the other printmaking majors were able to sign up so they kicked me out of the class and the only class that fit into my schedule was a flash class so I figured well at least I'll learn how to build myself a website so that I can get jobs after I graduate for my photography or whatever and I really liked it and I really really enjoyed learning flash so I took a second class and learned some HTML and CSS and I just really, really enjoyed doing web stuff. So I asked my professor, hey, where can I learn more about programming? And he goes to me, why would you want to do that? Then you're, a, um, then you're a programmer and not a designer. And I was like, well, I'm not a designer anyway, so it doesn't really matter, does it? And I then got a couple jobs where I taught myself a little bit more and I learned some WordPress and then I learned a little bit of Ruby. And eventually I went to Big Nerd Ranch for a week, which before boot camps were popular, this is kind of how you learned a new language. Uh, we, you would go to Atlanta for a week at Big Nerd Ranch where there was two days of Ruby and five days of Rails. And so that's how I got into Rails and Ruby for the most part. And there's a lot more after that, but that's my <laughs> origin part. That's so cool because um, I'm a bootcamp graduate myself and I know a lot of our listeners are as well. So, you know, the idea of going, I, I had seen Big Nerd Ranch um, back in when I was deciding to learn how to code. So was it like a big step for you to just take a week off and do this thing that really wasn't popular at the time? Well, the company that I worked for at the time paid for me to learn Ruby because they had Ruby projects, but not enough Ruby developers. So it sort of worked out that way. Um, I felt that it was easier than I could have probably taught myself, but I felt that I would get up to speed faster if I just went for a week and did only Ruby and Rails. That makes sense. I, I like structure myself as well, so I totally get that. I'm the person who likes to take classes at the gym versus just hanging out in the weight room, so yeah. I totally get that. Um, so how did you get involved on like actually contributing to Rails? How did that happen? So a couple, well, more than a couple years ago now, I guess, I spoke at my first conference, which was Mountain West Ruby, and I was talking about active record and the weird things that can happen if you're not paying attention. 
And the idea of the talk was it's not active record, it's you. Um, hmm. You have to learn how to write queries that aren't going to take your database down. And so it had a create, read, update, and delete component where I showed different ways that you could take your database down by writing queries that weren't performant. Uh, but while doing that, I actually discovered a bug in Active Record, and I thought, well, this is a really weird, this is really weird behavior. And Aaron Patterson was at that conference too, and so I showed him the bug that I had found, and he was like, well, we should pair on this, and we can fix it. And so we paired on it and fixed it, and then we found another bug, and we did that, and another bug, and we did that, and we've actually been pairing every once every week for four years. That's incredible. I mean, what a yeah. cool opportunity and just like what a cool partnership the two of you have. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's Rails is one of those languages, frameworks that's very hard to get into because it's so big. So it really helps to have another person who has knowledge of the framework to get you into it. And so mm -hmm. now it's more of like, oh, I have this idea, let's work on it together. Or he has an idea, we work on it together, then like, show me how things work. But it started out with show me how things work because I've got no idea. Yeah, and sometimes in answering those questions and showing someone how something works that you can uncover bugs or uncover, you know, spots of documentation that are needed. So that is really cool. So let's dig into what you do day to day and the subject of your blog post that we'll link in the show notes. But GitHub has been pretty famously supporting a legacy version of Rails. So at what point did the team decide to spend more than a year and a half to upgrade GitHub? Well, I don't, I don't think, I think it's one of those things that sort of happened accidentally where I first start, when I first started at GitHub, my team was like, well, this would be a good thing to start out with. And then we'll figure out what the next thing is, except for that. They don't, I don't know if they didn't realize I don't give up easily. <laughs> so. <laughs> It didn't really stop there, and then we got 4.0 green, and then it was 4.1 was the hardest, um, and that that was that was where it was clear that it the project needed a lot more help because it just wasn't it wasn't as 4.0 was a lot easier and 4.2 was easier, but 4.1 was very very hard because we have our own test framework, uh, which I do not recommend writing your own test framework that's based on Rails, but like sort of mixes in Rails, but then has a bunch of other stuff going on. And the big thing that happened in 4.1 was mini test, the mini test requirement changed from 4.7 to 5.1. And because of that, our entire test suite broke. So before we could even fix the failures in 4.1, we had to fix our test suite. We were doing a lot of stuff uh, that you're not supposed to do, like, mutate mini test classes and methods and all this other stuff. And so we were really mucking a lot with internals that we shouldn't have been touching. And so we had to change a lot of how our test framework worked before we could even work on failures that were for two, for one related. Uh, once that was done, it was clear that the runway wasn't that much longer. So for two, I think only took two months. And then once we got to that point, it was, uh, you know, once, once you get to 4.2, you can be like, okay, I can actually get to 5.2. So uh, it took 4.2 to 5.2 only took four or five months. So, and one of those, and the thing is, is a lot of people think like, oh, you spent a year and a half on this, but it's not a year and a half of four people's time, full time. It was the first year I was the only full time person on it and 
even then I didn't work on only that. I took a three month break to work on databases in our test and dev environments. Uh, between 4.2 and 5.0, I took about a month off, not actually off work, but just wasn't working on that. So it was not, it's not a year and a half of 40 hours a, a week just on that. And, uh, you know, but that is the timeline. That's how long it took. So that's why I say a year and a half, but people sometimes, especially on Reddit and Hacker News, really like held on to that. Like so one person was like, oh, it only took me a weekend. And I was like, well, <laughs> congratulations. <laughs> I, I do enjoy the comments on Hacker News. I, a lot of times I just click on the articles, just to read the comments because I just enjoy how much they spin out of control. But to your point yeah. though, I, I did want to talk about that. So basically you started out as a solo developer working on the upgrade. Was it a struggle to stay feature, like on feature parity as other developers are working? I, I imagine you have many developers at GitHub that are working on features in tandem. So was that a struggle to upgrade alongside that? Not as much as you'd think. So we have our application set up so that you can dual boot. So we have one build that runs uh, GitHub, GitHub build that just runs all the tests every time someone pushes. And then we have a second build for the version of Rails that we're working on. Uh, right now, we actually have two builds that run uh, once at, one against Rails Master and one against 5.2 that's in production. So that way, anytime someone pushes code, we know if they've introduced a regression or if Rails is broken. Uh, back in when we were doing the older versions of Rails, our assumption always was that Rails was fine and GitHub was broken. But now that we're on a version, we're on the newest version of Rails, we can say, oh, we maybe we found a bug in Rails instead of, oh, maybe we found a bug in GitHub. And so it helps a lot to be on the newer versions for those reasons. And But with the, with the introduction of features, because we dual boot and we're constantly testing, we don't really have to worry about someone else breaking the Rails upgrade because we're already testing against the thing that we're upgrading. So it prevents a lot of that churn. We don't have to deal with merge conflicts. We don't have to deal with, um, you know, each week finding like who introduced a regression because every push we're, we're checking for those regressions. And so then if there's, if we have a build that's required that's on a new version of Rails and somebody's feature breaks that, the responsibility of fixing that feature becomes their, their problem. Uh, it becomes their responsibility and we're not responsible for fixing new failures because we've already got the build green. So anything new means it was introduced by your feature. And so then the it uh, helps the team that's doing the upgrade not feel like they're responsible for everything. So that's kind of- That's great. I mean, that makes a lot of it. sense. Absolutely. Now, is your goal to have GitHub then be one of the earlier production applications to upgrade to newer versions of Rails now that you're on, you're on par? Yeah, so we have a build running. Right now I don't have it required because I, I well, I'm not sure. Rails has a history of being pretty stable, but because I'm actively <laughs> changing active records underlying behavior right now, I don't feel comfortable putting potential Rails regressions onto the rest of the team. So right mm -hmm. now we just have it run every 24 hours and it reports in our channel whether or not there are failures. And in the last, three weeks, there have been zero regressions introduced by GitHub code. 
and all of the bugs we found were in Rails or changes in Rails that aren't really bugs, but like help us find stuff in our code that should have been deleted anyway. Um, so I think we found our first regression today, which is really great because that means that Rails is really stable and GitHub is stable. So we're, my plan is that we will test the response times uh, deploys on, during the betas. So the second that the stable version is out, we can be on six. So you detailed in your blog post that you learned a lot of lessons from upgrading Rails, which I think would be really valuable for the listening audience to hear. If you wouldn't mind summarizing those points, that'd be fantastic, Eileen. Yeah, so in my blog post, I talked a bit about that about stuff that you learn when you're doing an upgrade. I mean, one thing that we learned, and it, it's hard to it's hard to to say this when I wasn't there when GitHub made the decision to stay on a legacy version for a while, but that decision had consequences, and you can't. It's hard to go. You can't go back in time and say, "Oh, let's change how it worked." But if you are a company and you're like, "Well, maybe I should just stay on Rails five because it works for me." I think that that's, you're going to want to one day find that that's a mistake because when you stay on a version of Rails, you're forced to reinvent stuff that the framework is going to add in the future. So we have our own job queuing thing and now Rails has active jobs. So we're working on migrating away from our own job, internal job queuer uh, so that we can use active job. But that decision means that we have stuff left in our app that makes it more complex we can't assume that it behaves the same way as active job because we wrote it ourselves and then that means that you have to relearn something that you can't google search which makes it a lot harder for new engineers to onboard so i'd say don't write your own stuff and just upgrade more often if you find that everywhere you work you're adding a job cure so pretend it's five years ago before rails has active job. If you're making a new app and every time you're making a new app, you have to add a job queue, that's something that maybe Rails needs. And so thinking that way of, well, why do I keep building the same tools over and over again? I should upstream them or open source them. And so that way you sort of prevent yourself from writing the same thing over and over again. And then it has more community support. So if you have less engineers on your team, you don't have to worry about hiring to like deal with your job queue because everyone else is dealing with your job queue. So, you know, making sure that you stay up to date in Rails, um, upstreaming features instead of building tooling in your application so that you're you're not reinventing the wheel or um, tightly coupling your application to your framework. You know, if you start using private APIs, like, I don't know, I can't think of one that we used, but uh, private APIs in Rails or anything that's not documented or actually labeled private. All of those things, if you use them in your application, the Rails team reserves the right to change them without deprecation. And so your app might just break. So instead of, you know, getting a cool deprecation notice that tells you, hey, like you shouldn't use this anymore. This is the new way to do something. It'll just throw a ton of errors. And so then you're going to have to figure out like what, what changed in Rails and how it changed and was it replaced? And sometimes we just delete stuff and you won't be able to rebuild that thing. So making sure that you don't use private APIs, um, stuff like that, staying upgraded early, like what we're doing at GitHub with the, uh, the second build that runs Rails Master, we're gonna be able to deploy the day after Rails 6 is released and we're gonna know it's stable. I and mean, we won't have to spend a year and a half upgrading because 
we're doing it all the time slowly not uh not like big chunks so it's a lot less pressure it's a lot less stress and Mm -hmm. it's easier no i think that's great because i mean as many famous examples as we can get of large uh, ruby on rails apps that are upgrading fast and soon I think is always just going to encourage a community to, to continue to upgrade and to stay on top of things. So I think GitHub is just another one that everyone looks to. And I think it, it's, it's just going to be a great reminder to everyone that upgrading is always a good thing. It always brings wonderful gifts and security updates, et cetera. So I, I think that's all just great stuff. Speaking of upgrading, I know that you're currently working on Rails 6. So at your last RailsConf talk, the future of Rails 6 scalable by default, which I got, was lucky to see in person in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, you mentioned that Rails 6 will have the ability to support multiple databases. Where did this need come from? So at GitHub, we've supported multiple databases for many, many years. But to do that, we had to hack it into our application. We've got code everywhere. We had to change how configs work and we had to write our own rake tasks and we had to uh, write a database switcher and we had to write all this other stuff so that Rails could understand something other than Active Record Base and your main database. So by default, Rails only understands that there can be one and you can kind of work around that. There's, There's tooling in there, but it's not documented and it's really hard to use. So I actually didn't realize how hard it was to use I knew that for a long time there'd been this sort of road, um, we don't really have a roadmap in Rails. Like people are like demand to see our roadmap and it's really just like this list of nice to haves and then whoever wants to feel like working on it. And a lot of times people try to start it and then they're just like, this is too hard and they can't, they don't do it. Uh, so multiple databases has been one of those things for a long time that we've had. And it does it's not, people who haven't worked on that before don't feel comfortable implementing something like that. And so, it really was down to either Shopify or GitHub core members to do it because I don't think anyone else has multiple databases. Uh, Basecamp does, but at a, a slightly smaller, uh, actually I would say a much smaller scale than GitHub because we're unique in that we have 10 different primary databases and 10 replicas. And we actually have more than 10 replicas, but Rails only knows about 10 because we just switch in the configuration and then we have a load balancer layer that is not in the Rails application that decides where to route the traffic for each of the replicas. So we have like, I don't I don't actually know how many, how many replicas we have because we don't define them in the application. But we have 10 write connections and 10 read connections. So Got um, it. So you basically had custom code in GitHub. Shopify has custom code to support multiple databases. It's been a nice to have. It might have been an issue that was opened up on the repository. And it just some, it looked like something interesting for you to, to work on. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, it looked like something interesting. And then I learned how hard it was. But I don't, <laughs> give, up. I don't give up easily. So <laughs> it'll happen. I mean, the, the key to getting something that massive into Rails mm-hmm. is to not try to do it all at once. Right. So I think that that's where some other people have tried and failed because it's really like each individual part is a discussion about like, what's the API going to look like? What's this going to look like? How is this going to behave? And so starting with something like the rake tasks that I, that I started with, even though that wasn't the most important thing, like the most important thing is, can I switch a connection? Mm-hmm. I felt that starting with that would, sh- would give it more momentum because it's, well, one, it was a little easier <laughs> than actually fixing the connections but then 
setting up my demo app was so hard because none of that stuff worked. So that way I could have a demo app where I could create and destroy databases really easily and then figure out if the switching worked. And so that way I didn't have to reinvent everything before I actually started testing the connections. So even though it seems like something that you wouldn't start with because it's not necessary, because it doesn't, it's not needed to make multiple databases work, I felt it was needed to make testing them easy. And so I wasn't willing to like have to do all of this manually. And so I actually started with that because it was easier for me to get the work done, uh, even though it doesn't really seem like the thing that should have been started with. But then it's like, oh, look, we have this thing and now it's so much easier. And even if you ha still have all this hacky code in your app, creating and deleting and migrating the databases isn't what's hard. And that was one of the harder things because it was time consuming, not because it wasn't possible. That makes a lot of sense. And, you know, it's it's always difficult to tackle a large feature and know just where to start. And, and you know, you tackling the rake task is actually somewhere that I probably would have gone to as well. So, so I think you hinted around at the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You had tweeted out like a call to action to the Rails community where you said, hey, Rails users, if you use multiple database connections, I'd love it if you could send me your database.yaml. Did you actually get real responses from the community on that? Yeah, so the reason that I asked for that was because I wanted to see how complex they were. Um, one of the discussions that we had that I haven't really fixed yet was uh, David wanted the ability for us to be able to have uh, more, more than three tiers in your database configuration. So instead of being like animals primary and animals replica, you would have animals and under there you would have primary and replica, or if you have more than one replica, primary and replicas. Um, I, wasn't, I wasn't sure how complex everyone's multiple database configurations were, and I wanted to see them because I, I wanted to, I, I was making assumptions about how configurations work, and I know that people do all sorts of different stuff in their applications, and so I wanted to see what they look like so I could stop making assumptions about their configurations. I haven't actually fixed that problem yet because I, there's, Rails makes a lot of assumptions about what the default connection is. And so when you boot your app, there is a call in the rail tie that just says established connection. And it doesn't pass any environment or database so Rails has to know which one is the default. And so we, so all that work that I did to refactor the configurations was so that Rails could understand which one the default was. And so I already did a lot of work to get three tiers working because when I started working on it, I, we had the support for a three tier configuration, but it didn't actually work because Rails didn't know what the default connection was. And so that's the, like the underlying problem in, in Rails Rails' assumptions about how configurations work. Um, so I can't just add a bunch of more tiers and have it continue working currently. So that's something that we're going to work on. But one of the things I started thinking about was maybe the database YAML isn't a good representation of a configuration. And if everyone's configurations are so complex that Rails doesn't understand what the default is when you have four, five, six, whatever tiers, in the config, like if you can't just keep adding whatever you want and Rails can't understand the default configuration, maybe that's not the right tool for it. But I don't know yet. 
No, that makes sense. And so how can our listeners support you with Rails 6 and multiple databases? Is there anything that they can do now or that you'd like for them to do in the future? Um, right now, we have a lot of people working on it. So uh, not jumping the, the gun and adding more would is good. <laughs> uh, not everything is going to work right now and a lot of things are in flux. So I don't want to invite too much more work in there because uh, I've got a couple of people from Shopify helping me. We have people at GitHub working on it. And for now, we're just kind of trying to get something very basic and flexible working without having a little bit like without having too much stuff flying. So the thing that would really help is start upgrading your app and tell me what breaks because everyone has different configurations. I don't know what your config looks like. Maybe you send it to me and I know what it looks like then, but I don't know what's going to break because the configurations tests around Rails are not as robust as they should be. And so it is kind of easy to break stuff. And so upgrading early is going to help us find those things, especially if you're a gem author using active record, because we did change how configurations work and they no longer return a hash. So uh, it might break. <laughs> okay, good to know, good to know. That's your call to arms, everyone. Um, so Eileen, thank you so much for joining me. I'd love to know, how can our listeners follow you? Do you have any upcoming conferences, blogs that they can read? What should they be doing to keep up with you? Yeah, so I, I'm, on, I'm at Eileen Codes on Twitter. That's where I tweet. You can reach me there. I have a blog at EileenCodes.com, but I haven't written it in a while. Maybe I'll write about the, the configurations closer to Rails 6. Um, and then I will be at RubyConf, but I'm not speaking. It'll be my first conference where I'm not speaking at in like four or five years. Oh, that'll probably feel I'm great. Attending. So yeah, it'll be <laughs> nice. I figured after a RailsConf keynote, I should take a break. Yes. Um, but... <laughs> In February, I'll be speaking at Ruby on Ice. Nice. That and looks like an amazing conference. Yeah. I've got a couple more that I am probably speaking at, but I it's not on their websites yet, so I don't want to announce it for them. But I'm definitely speaking at Ruby on Ice, so I'll be there for Very. that. And everyone keeps telling me it's, oh, it's so cold there, but all those people were from the UK, and I'm like, look, I live in upstate New York. I know what cold is. <laughs> yeah, you do. <laughs> Well, awesome. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. As always, if anyone has any feedback, please reach out to me on Twitter. That's Britt J. Martin, B-R-I-T-T-J Martin. And um, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Thanks.